we give you thanks, Lord, for the great privilege that it is just to be here this day. We think of those places where uh, people are not free to worship you, not free uh, to gather together, and yet they do, Lord. And we ask in the same way that that uh, spirit would be with us, that you would ignite in us a fire uh, that burns brighter and brighter with every passing day, that you would increase in us a desire uh, to know you and to gather as a family of believers, to set aside uh, our own preferences, Lord, but to seek you. And Lord, we ask as we gather around your word that what we hear would not be from me, but from you, and that you would speak to each of us as individuals and all of us as a church family, that you would encourage us, perhaps rebuke us, but above all, challenge us to live for you. By your word, we know you, and through your word, we live with you. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. One of uh, my mother's favorite questions, don't tell her if she's here sometime that she was a, a, a sermon example, on the phone is, where are you? Without doubt, uh, always uh, is asked at some point, where are you? Now, it's not necessarily asked in a critical way. It just seems to be one of those things. I could be in the room next door. I could be... Uh, traveling, and mom will ask, where are you? Uh, and the answer is given. It's such a common question. We ask it of people all the time, or we get asked it by people over and over again. Uh, and it's so regular that uh, perhaps it's almost like a greeting. Where are you? And yet the, the context of a question being asked can change it so much. Many, many years ago, as a family, we were on holiday in England. Can't quite remember where, but we were in a national park at a beautiful day. Me, mom and dad, Stuart, my older brother, and Ian had just been born, our younger brother. And so I was uh, that middle child, the young, but, but sort of slightly more independent than a, a toddler. I, and I saw a sign for a butterfly uh, auditorium, if that's the right word. And for some reason at that time, I really, really wanted to see these butterflies. Don't know why, I never had a great interest in them. But when I asked that, he said no. And I was livid. It had ruined my holiday. All I wanted to see was those butterflies. And so I set myself on a course to find these butterflies, regardless of where mom and dad were going. Now, when I got there, it was closed. And when I got there, I realized that I hadn't a clue how to get back to my parents. I was in a park where I didn't know I was lost in that sense. Uh, now, little did I know that I had caused an incident. The park had been shut down. The police had been called. Uh, an emergency had been declared. And everyone was looking for me. And now I knew I had disobeyed. I knew I had done wrong. Uh, and so I was determined not to do anything worse. And what is the one thing we tell a child not to talk to strangers? So here I was, lost in this park, but knowing that I, don't, I shouldn't talk to anyone. Uh, even though lots of people seem to be calling my name. Andrew, where are you? No, don't talk to strangers. So determined was I to find mum and dad by myself that I uh, headed off the park's tracks in through the forest and uh, somehow managed to get myself more lost now. Uh, lucky for you, uh, I was fine because you get to have me here today as your minister. And that whole 
uh, sense of stress and fatigue uh, was overcome. But I remember that moment of being brought to my mom and dad uh, and that being in utterly tears and worried, that sense of weight with that question as I asked, where was I? And it's that heaviness that we feel at the start of this psalm this morning. The Psalm 9 has transitioned into Psalm 10. Uh, we're posed, in a sense, to delve deeper into the contrast and the continuity between them. There is a Messiah who is coming. Uh, that picture is clear. But where Psalm 9 ends with confidence on who God is and what God will do, Psalm 10 begins with a deep searching, as if the psalm before it never existed. Uh, we seem to confront different aspects of faith here, that in a sense, God seems absent. The psalm's voice is heavy with worry about the weight and state of the world. And yet, as it goes and as it asks, and as that question is asked at the beginning, where is God? For a long time, there is no answer uh, until the end. David asks this searching question, or the psalmist asks this searching question. Uh, and since we've been in the psalms from the summer, we've seen it asked time and time again. As David has struggled through valleys, he asks the question. In Psalm 9, he wonders where the Lord is. Psalm 9, reaching that beautiful point of verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his justice. David loves the Lord. And he's walked with him his whole life in good seasons and bad seasons and difficult times and joyful times. David has always known the presence of God, a beautiful picture of the assurance that we should sense in every day and feel in every way as we are with Christ and living for him. But it also today should give us a sense of just how powerful that question is. The psalmist asks, in a sense, already knowing, but whatever it is is going on, whatever it is he is going through, it feels as if he's utterly alone. The dark night has extended. And this question is asked in such a profound way. And it's answered sort of over three stages. The first 11 verses present the world as it is, broken, sinful, and dark. The, the Verses 12 to 15 then expand, in a sense, on the, the sunrise, the, the moment that joy starts to come. As we see from despair, a prayer rise up that seeks God's help. And then the final two verses, 16 and 18, give us that sense of confidence. The answer, in a sense, to what has been asked. We've all had uh, friends who can be, or known people, in a sense, who can be difficult. Sometimes the phone rings and they're a little bit, you're just not in the right mood. Whatever it is, they sometimes seem to draw out of us energy or joy. Heaviness always is abounding at them. The psalmist here at the start, it just seems to be weighed down so much, so deeply by whatever is going on. in such a great despair in that sense that there doesn't seem to be much hope. Probably he is alone and also is avoided, such as the heaviness that covers him. And verse 3 begins in contrast to verse 9 by painting a picture of one who is opposed to God, if you're following along. 
If the mark of faith is humility, that we think of ourselves less and our hearts are focused on God, if the mark of faith is humility in the sense that we know we are sinful and in need of a Savior, if the mark of faith is that, then what we see here is the complete and utter opposite. To north, it is south. It is arrogance. It's a heart that is completely opposed to God. The arrogant here living as if there is no God. Not even that. The arrogant here living as if they themselves are God. And that's the picture we see right at the beginning of this psalm, this picture of arrogance that expands and expands. And so in verse nine, in Psalm 9, we have the God who will bring justice. In Psalm 10, we have the image of the arrogant, wicked person who has set their hearts on destruction. They hunt down who, those who the world has already hurt and battered, the helpless, and they take advantage of them. Such is the state of the world that the psalmist is describing here. It's a picture of lawlessness. There is no justice. The enemy of God is free to do what they want, to catch in their schemes and devices those who are innocent. The age is evil. Darkness is the norm of the day, and God seems to be absent. That is the picture that this psalm is painting. It's a picture of contrast. As we heard a couple of weeks ago of the God who will bring justice, who will remove every sin from the earth, what we see here is a world where there is no justice. And as we read, as we hear those heavy verses, I will be honest and I just find myself finding and thinking of the world that we live in today. The world that is still marked by the same evil, a world that is still marked by the same selfishness and individuality, where it's not about what is good for all, but what is good for me. Our normal, our ethics, our culture in that sense of which we find ourselves clambering through seems to be getting darker and darker each day. And yet sometimes we are no better. We're as selfish as it seems to be here. Our hearts are as hard to the call to love one another as Christ has loved us. We are far from God. We are without Christ. We're the arrogant ones that the psalmist points to here. We are those who will step over one another to get to the top. We are those who will do what we need to do to be okay, even if we know it might hurt someone else. That's the way of the world, isn't it? In contrast to the way of Christ, where he who commanded, this you do for the least, you do for me. For he who called and said, if you love one another as I have loved you, then the world will know that you are my disciple. And so in the world we have radical, rampant selfishness. And in the kingdom of God, we have Christ-centered selflessness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, beautiful to eyes that find hope in it. So we see here a, a, a psalmist describing a world many years ago, and yet, is it any different than today? Where the enemy of God 
will say, I tell you the truth. I will take from the least and do whatever I want. And so in this world, where do we turn? In a world that has been corrupted and when so often those who are in power are the pinnacle of what is painted here as they strive over the helpless, as they feed off whatever resources their countries might have. It is an ugly picture of a world that is far from God and descending deeper and deeper into darkness. And in it, and this psalm, I remembered those words from Proverbs 4. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The heart is the center of who we are. If we are in Christ, then our heart belongs to Christ, and from our heart will flow Christ, from everything you do flows from it. The Lord said of David, he was a man after my own heart, not because David was good. He was not, but because he loved the Lord and he stumbled and he fell and he mucked up again and again. Every sin seemed to be worse and yet he come back to the Lord. He come back to the Lord. His heart belonged to God because the heart is central to who we are and all we do. And that's why here, as this psalm goes forward, we begin to see a picture of the heart. The psalmist brings us even into more into this individual that he's talking about. As he outlines his heart, he boasts in the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not see him. Humble heart, open to God, an arrogant heart, a sinner's heart, closed to hope. And C.S. Lewis famously said, there are only two types of people in the end. Those who will say to God, your will be done. And those to who God will say in the end, you have your way. Without that self-choice, there will be no one who will separate themselves from God. And what Lewis means is quite simply that there's no in-between. There's no gray area in this walk of life, in this road of faith. Either our hearts belong to God by faith in Christ, or our hearts are what is painted here, arrogant, saying that we can live in this world without God, and both are our choices, and both we will receive the fruits of. Sin is in opposition to God. And so no amount of good deeds will change that. No amount of going to church, no amount of religious acts, no amount of pious thinking or moral speaking or even considerate caring will affect how we stand before God until we humble our hearts with him. As the psalmist says here, our pride will lead us to walk our own ways in verse 4. Our way that has no mind for God as the verses go on, no consideration for the kingdom or his ethic. Far from it, it thinks there is no God. It thinks of itself as God. Hear those verses there. Nothing bad will ever happen to me. We will be free from trouble forever, the person says. Nothing will ever shake me. No one will ever do me harm. So prideful is the picture that the psalmist paints here of someone so 
arrogant. They consider themselves invincible. And then in the next five verses, from verses 7 to 11, the picture that is already dark seems to darken even more as we see just how evil the enemy of God is. Their sin is growing, their arrogance increasing, their deeds becoming more and more destructive. Not just that they are setting traps for the, the helpless now, they're acting to kill, to bring murder. His mouth is full of threats and lies, the psalmist says. It, trouble hides under his tongue. It's an image that is saying there is no part of this person that is set apart for anything good. They are like a lion, hell-bent on destruction, taking life at will for no reason, uh, taking advantage of the helpless. There's no one free from their evil. If he's not murdering innocents, he's catching the helpless and dragging them off. It's an awful picture. It's an awful picture of the world that we live in. Such is the arrogance that no one here seems to do anything to this person and this person seems to think that they are free to live as they please. And thus, it doesn't seem it, but the worst sin of all finds itself towards the end of this section. They have the arrogance to speak ill of God. It might seem like the least of issues, but it's the pinnacle here. Because to trust in oneself over God is in some way to make ourselves equal with God. To trust in yourself in light of eternity is to deny not just the cross of Christ and all that he has done for you, but to suggest that we can find our own way. And so the question that is asked at the beginning of this psalm seems to be answered, in a sense, by the evil person. As they say, there is no God. He turns his face from me. He's forgotten the plights of the helpless and the hopeless. He has abandoned the weak. And it's a lie. And hence, then, straight away, in verse 12, hope begins to rise as real in, in this real-world situation, we see what is a real prayer from the heart of the psalmist. Two words. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hands. O God, do not forget the helpless. And if we're to remember one thing from this passage this morning, one thing from this sermon, it is that God is present. He is an ever-present help. In times of trouble, he is forever with us. And though the psalmist's heart has been heavy with despair, though the situation seems so dark, they know where to turn when there is no hope. God is here. Arise, the psalmist cries out. The same weight that asks that question, where are you, Lord, now answers in prayer as it calls for God to act. And for us... <laughs> The lesson is clear. Whatever situation we are in, whatever we might find ourselves going through, whatever we have done or left undone, we can turn to God. Because we know in Christ, on the cross, that he has turned to us. 
He does not withdraw himself from our plight. He is present. And no darkness can overcome the, the light of Christ. And so to the image of the crushed, helpless, the psalmist prays here that the hand of God would be moved to act. It's a prayer of protection. It's a prayer for justice. A dreadful situation this may be, but the psalmist is confident in the goodness of God, in the heart of God, and that God is concerned with the helpless. The world may not see them, the psalmist says here, but God sees you. He knows whatever it is you're going through. He knows whatever it is that weighs heavy on your shoulder, and so you can turn to him. It's not a hopeless prayer. And the language then over this couple of verses includes in little ways all that has been specified and outlined over the last 11 verses, that picture of darkness. And the psalmist is making clear that God will respond to all that has been done. He will be the one who will bring justice. For all who seek him, he will hear. He will make those who have been helpless help. He will be the care for those who have been rejected. And here, the picture of the fatherless in a society based around family units where the father was the pinnacle, it is a picture of the most oppressed. And they, the psalmist says, God will help. The, the arm of God will move against those who oppose him. And thus, those beautiful verses at the end, the Lord is king forever and ever. Verse 16. The nations will perish from his hand. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Defender of the fatherless and the oppressed. So that mere earthly mortals will never strike terror again. Sab asked at the beginning, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Where are you, God? And that psalm that began with searching for God now ends with certainty in God. The Lord is king forever and ever. There is no longer a cry for help. Rather, there is a confidence, a declaration of who God is. A psalm that began with uncertainty now concludes with assurance. God is here and God will act. The statement of verse 16, it, it draws in so much imagery. It's the image of the Messiah, he who will come to bring justice, he who will bring an end to the reign of darkness. Eugene Peterson phrases these verses, the reign of terror is over. The rule of the gang lords has ended. The Lord is king. And so Psalm 9 answers its question. You might find yourselves wondering where God is. The psalm that longed for the Messiah to come, for Emmanuel to be present and fight for the poor, finds hope in his coming. The Messiah who will incline his ear to the oppressed, do justice for the fatherless, and one day establish a throne forever. And we know that that Messiah has come. We call him King Jesus. And so the question that we must ask is, is he king over our life? 
Are we in his kingdom or this kingdom of the world that we've seen so clearly presented today? Is he king over this church? Do we live? Do we gather for his name's sake or for our name's sake? And are we living by the way of the king as we seek to build his kingdom? He has come and he will come again. So let us put our trust in him. Let us pray.